Welcome to episode three of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam Gregory, and I'm joined by our, my co-host, Tom Warbill. How are you, Tom? Hey, Sam. Not doing bad yourself? I'm good. And today we're going to have a guest on from the 21st Club, Omar Chowdhury. And uh, so tell us a little bit about our guest today. So, yeah, Omar works for 21st Club, um, and he used to work at ProZone after leaving university. So I think we sort of thought Omar would be a, a nice choice of guest because of the sort of position of 21st Club in the sphere of analytics and future planning in football. Um, quite a lot of in the news recently, and, and especially from my last podcast, about one of the co-founders, Rasmus, who's joined Brentford as a co-director of football, and he's heavily involved with Michelin as well. Um, and also just sort of the things that 21st Club are doing. So they've had, they have Richard Whittle, who's doing a uh, sort of weekly um, analytical blog for them. Um, they're active with quite a few clubs. Um, so yeah, a very interesting firm, which I don't think there are any real copies of um, at the minute. So it'd be cool to see what they're sort of doing, for those that don't know, and what Omar's role involves, and um, how he's gone from sort of a an analytics uh, and football blogger to where he is now. Yeah, and Omar is also, I think, a special kid. He's one of the few multi-sports analytics guys. He also does cricket as well, which will be interesting to talk about the overlaps and how that feeds into talking about football. Yeah, a bit of a mix-up from the usual football, but uh should be fun. Okay, so let's bring on Omar. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey. How's it going? How you guys? Yeah, good. Thanks. How how you how you guys' weekend's been? Pretty yeah, good. Good. Yeah. How's the? Uh, I've seen England have just won the cricket. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, so I was at the Test match on Friday, and yeah, it's actually been following it on TV since. Uh, had a nice, nice long weekend, which was just good. But back to work. Back to work tomorrow. Okay. So you you want to just start by giving an introduction of yourself and what you do at Twenty First Club? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So. Yeah, I, um, I'm the head of football intelligence at 21st Club. Um, 21st Club are a strategic consultancy for stakeholders in uh, primarily football, but potentially other sports. Um, so we help football clubs, national associations and other people involved in and around the game with um, their decision making or really any aspect of strategic thinking that they need um, need help on. So my role in the business, as you'll know, I've, I've come from a kind of analytics background or a numbers background. Um, my role is to deliver that consultancy um, through some use of data, but also um, through reports and through any kind of strategic advice we can give to to clubs. So yeah, that's that's really my role. I've been I've been in the business for nearly a year now. Just uh, was it just shy of a year, just uh, eleven months or so. Um, and yeah, it's going is uh, going really good. So I'm really enjoying it. And your sort of role before was with um, Prozone. It was that similar yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, so I was at Prozone for two years. Um, so I, I graduated in economics uh, three years ago. I joined Prozone straight after that. And my role at Prozone was, um, I was a data scientist, I can say it easy for me to say, a data scientist at Prozone. Um, and again, it was a similar sort of thing in terms of delivering um, consultancy to clubs. There it was more focused on helping um, technical scouts and um, members of the recruitment department with um, 
enabling them with better tools to identify and recruit players. Um, now my role at 21st Club is more around um, uh, strategic consultancy around boardroom level. So it's a slightly different um, audience now, but uh, it's still, I guess it's still football, isn't it? So you can't really, uh, can't really complain. So I've noticed a lot of the focus at 21st Club is on long-term planning and sort of saying, what is the plan for the club for the next two years? What's the plan for the next five years? How does that sort of focus change from the more short-term focus we tend to see a lot in football with managers coming in and out all the time and behind the like boardroom staff changing quickly. How does this longer-term approach sort of work into the everyday workings of a football club? Yeah, I think I think that's one of the biggest challenges um, clubs have at the moment is that there's a lack of, of, of long-term planning and that um, causes all kinds of ripple effects throughout the rest of the club. You know, if, if there's no there's no long-term plan in place. Um, the manager's not necessarily secure in his role. The chief scout's not really secure in his role. Um, the players themselves don't know whether what the direction of the club is, um, and that can cause obviously huge insecurity. And when uh, anyone in any job is insecure, I don't think it leads to, to optimal performance. So what we try and do is we try and uh, help clubs um, ensure that when they're actually managing their, their their club and managing their squad, they're setting it up for the long term. So it's trying to understand, you know, I mean, so so often we've seen occasions where a club has let their squad age, for instance, and having to go through a huge overhaul to try and fix that. And again, that creates instability. So we can try and preempt those kind of issues by better understanding of peak ages and that kind of thing. Similarly, uh, trying to make sure that you're not reacting to essentially randomness so you're not reacting to the everyday ebb and flow of results but you're trying to understand what your underlying levels of performance what are, what are your likely outcomes this season and therefore if you're a club you might be bottom of the league in september uh, but have perhaps good underlying performance not to panic but to kind of steady uh, stay the course and uh, and make sure that you're not trying to rock the boat uh, and uh, and cause instability there. So we do a lot of work in that area. We've um, that's where a lot of our consulting is done. Um, because ultimately, at clubs, the the, the people in charge of um, strategic long term planning are the chief execs, directors of football. They're the people who will be there for a bit longer. So they're they're the audience we t- we tend to work with. And have you seen there become sort of a uh, a shift in terms of clubs focusing more on the long term uh, without? Or with your help, or do you feel that it's going to be sort of a, a slow process to, to change for all clubs to start thinking more past this season, next season, and sort of, and so on? Yeah, I think I think there is a bit of a shift. I think um, part of the reason is now increasingly um, uh, key decision makers in football come from a non-football background. So you're getting people coming from different industries, whether it's, uh, I think I, I met someone who worked for Lego um, in, a, in a key finance role in a, in a at a club, you know, you're getting people from industries that got nothing to do with football, but have got a lot of good practices in those businesses, and therefore they're bringing those across uh, and implementing them. And I think that you've got also um, a, a generation of younger managers now, younger scouts, younger people involved um, in clubs who are also more receptive to, uh, to ideas. That's not to say, you know, um, that's not to say uh, that uh, they're necessarily. Um, uh, older people within clubs are necessarily dinosaurs or anything like that. I think there's a lot of adaptable uh, people within clubs, but I think you are seeing a big shift from um, other industries coming in and, and and having their influence in football. And a lot of a lot of consultancies. I mean, a lot of clubs will speak to 
consultancies outside of football to try and understand what they do in different industries now. It's not the, the point. The point is football. Uh, football is no longer uh, just a sport, and I think we we all kind of appreciate and know that. But it's become more and more of a business, which I think is is frustrating for some people because obviously a lot of people uh, want just football to be a sport and entertainment. But I think uh, because clubs are increasingly increasingly seeing themselves as businesses, they want to run themselves more like businesses. Uh, and you know, if you can't you can't really have a a five billion pound, maybe eight billion pound TV deal without running yourself as a business. So there is definitely a shift, but it will um, occur at different speeds in different countries at different levels. So you've been talking a lot about the off field sort of perspective of rearranging boardrooms, rearranging that sort of off the field hierarchy. When you're talking about changes, you know, player personnel. 21st club get involved in that or is it more setting up the framework for clubs to deal with that on their own yeah it's, it's more about setting up the framework so um a club yeah we'll, we'll try and help a club um make sure they're, they're shopping in the right markets or making sure they've got the right kind of lines of communication um back to the manager back to the boardroom as opposed to going out there and us actively identifying those players so i think a lot of clubs uh, you know, whilst whilst there is of course um, a, a task in identifying innate talent in players, there's also a huge task to be done in identifying players will actually suit your team, which often is best left left to the clubs or people who understand the clubs um, are coming in and understanding the clubs. So, whilst there are there are people I know who are doing work in that area and helping um, clubs or clubs themselves using numbers to identify talent or do more is setting up that as you say setting up that framework to ensure that clubs are uh, or uh, avoid making bad mistakes in the transfer market by setting the right framework to, to do that and in terms of building a framework is that something that's off the shelf a finished product for every single club or is it something that you sort of have to customize for the size and, and the, the personnel involved with your different clients yeah, so I mean, we've got we've got a piece of software um, that we sell to clubs, and um, that's around long term planning. Um, in terms of, we've got we've got other um, as as called products and services that we that we sell to clubs as well. Um, it, it, it does vary, really. I mean, you've got some some areas where it's very much bespoke, and you're looking at exactly the problem within clubs. But there are problems that exist um, across the industry where you can come up with some fairly generic. Um, set of rules or set of ideas that you can um, implement in any club so whether it's you know just ensuring that the balance of your squad in terms of um, age profiles is not skewed towards one end or the other um, that's something that's fairly consistent in one division or in one country so you can help um, clubs in that area but um, but yeah I'd I'd say broadly there there are some basic things that clubs could do better and that's what we try and try and help with. So with 21st Club, do you, and the sort of the slogan on the website of the 21st Club story being, you know, maybe one day we'll run our own club. Uh, and I guess the whole premise of the, the company is to sort of run in what your eyes is. And, and correct me if this is wrong, but running in your eyes, what you think that the, the best practice, long-term planning uh, and involving all this sort of, sort of, I'd say, maybe dark arts in terms of sports, science and all these analytics and stuff. Is that sort of the end game for 21st Club? Will you always be a consultancy, do you feel? Or, or is there a, a longer-term plan for you guys in place uh, in terms of what you want to be? Yeah, so I, I suppose the original um, vision is, um, with, with the branding, is you know 
most major leagues or the, the top um, leagues in Europe have 20 clubs. If we were the 21st club, how would we beat the opposition? How would we do things differently? Um, and so through that, we're um, essentially setting up a vehicle for best practice and, and using that and creating a manifesto that we can then take to clubs and, and show them how you know certain areas that they could improve, whether it's in... Um, so one club at the moment, you know, we're, we're working uh, on... Um, long-term planning another club you might be working on uh, improving their managerial hire another club it might be actually on the kind of uh, sponsorship commercial side um so the, the long term i mean the long term is always hard hard to say um what the what the plan is uh, for the business but certainly um the here and now is very much um as i say creating a vehicle for best practice and um and advising clubs um around their strategic and decision making now, just to switch gears a bit, you've done a lot of writing on your own personal blog as well, and as you said, you were with Prozone before, and one thing I found interesting is that you're one of very few multi-sport analytics people, <laughs> and that you write a lot about cricket as well, and I've, I've found personally that writing about analytics in, in terms of football, there's a lot we can learn from other sports. I've written stuff looking at things that have been done in hockey, been done in uh, baseball as well, and I'm wondering if you think there's anything that we can learn on the soccer side from cricket. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not actively involved in any sense in in the cricket analytics world. I mean, I do, as you say, you know, I've written the odd blog, which has taken kind of some simple data online and, and tried to try to look at it, look at it in a different way. In terms of things to learn from cricket, um, I don't know. It's, it's very different. Obviously, cricket fans grow up with a lot of data. They're used to seeing. Uh, all kinds of numbers. I think it'd be good if football could create that culture. Um, and that culture comes from, in cricket, from probably a couple of sources. The first one being um, the Wisden Almanac, which is produced every year, certainly for English cricket followers. The, uh, and for those who don't know, a, a thousand page book published every year with stats and scorecards from uh, pretty much any game going on around the world, uh, particularly, uh, but focusing particularly on the UK. Um, You've also got a very good um, media coverage here in terms of their receptiveness to using stats. You've got the whole Hawkeye technology um, in cricket, where which is used very well by the broadcasters here, I think, compared to technology in, in football, uh, all the stats available in football. Um, so I think in some sense it almost starts with the with the outsiders and the broadcasters improving the education of statistics and the um, and analysis within the sport. I think if, if anything, that's the one thing football could learn culturally as opposed to actually anything um, in terms of methodology. But uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's all kinds of crazy statistical techniques being done out there in, in cricket. Um, but if uh, someone in football speaks to one of the top analysts out there, I'm sure they'll be able to pick them up and translate it across. Because in baseball, it's sort of, I guess they had the opposite problem, or some, maybe the problem exists in cricket, but that there was so much sort of acceptance of certain statistics that when people started to look into these numbers and realize they're useless, or they're not very good, they're not telling us what we think they are, they're telling us, there was this backlash because people already were comfortable with these statistics and they weren't, they weren't yeah. open to learning new ones. And I'm wondering, does that, is that something you see in cricket at all? Are, people, are there numbers people feel comfortable with that they don't like being told aren't that useful? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because obviously in, in baseball you've got this league structure and, and there's a key element of um, picking picking players. Well, there was a key element of picking players based on statistics and um, 
yeah, you're essentially, you're essentially trying to look at a huge group of players and, and try and whittle it down, perhaps through a few numbers. In in cricket, you've got this kind of um, you've just got a handful of national teams and a few players who are perhaps on the fringes of the national teams. Uh, and it's fair. I think perhaps this again. I don't watch baseball. I don't know, but I think uh, and it might just be me being a bit of a laggard here. But it, I think sometimes in cricket, it's fairly obvious you can post some. Cricketers post good averages generally tend to be better cricketers, and you can consider certain things like what types of grounds they're playing at and that kind of thing. Um, but generally, I think uh, for national team selection, there's probably not that much numbers that can be used. But what has changed in the last ten years, or, or probably six or seven years, is the introduction of the Indian Premier League, um, where it's the the richest league in the world. There's um, a lot of money at stake in terms of selecting the right players, and I, I've often thought in the they've got a draft or an auction system in that in that league, and I've often thought that there's probably a lot of work you could do there in terms of creating new stats to understand the players, particularly around understanding. Uh, which bowlers should bowl at certain times of the innings, which bowlers perhaps overvalued because they've tended to take their wickets against lower order players or so on. Um, so I think there's, there's probably quite a lot that can be done in, in the Indian Premier League. I think for, for national team selection, there might be something, but generally it's a much smaller pool of players you're selecting from or a lot more smaller pool of players that kind of are on the fringes or in contention of the team. You kind of, I, I think probably cricket people have got a fairly, a fairly good grasp of, of what, the right thing is, although of course data can help, but I think um, in leagues that's more similar to American leagues and, and baseball, such as the Indian Premier League, uh, the Big Bash in Australia, potentially the 2020 League in England down the line, then there might be a bit more um, there. But I'm certainly um, no expert on on cricket data. I've just taken interest more than anything else. Going back to sort of the, the point around uh, the IPL, do you mm. feel that? That sort of teams or say leagues, uh, sorry, like the the Premier League can learn from those sort of leagues, considering the the amount of money in the league, but they've managed to sort of scale it so it's become a global brand. Versus say the Premier League's getting uh, it, in what sense, can the Indian Premier League learn from? Sorry, can the yeah I should probably differentiate between those two. Um, <laughs> how much can the English Premier League football sort of learn? Because obviously you've got the new TV deal coming in and a mm. lot of money in the league, but the league sort of growth in terms of talent and on-field performance isn't really growing at the same rate, whereas I feel the IPL is the sort of premier league for, it's where all the best cricketers go, and I'm, I guess, is that correct? And do you feel that sort of the growth that's happened in, in India could or, or should be replicated in England with the football, just because of the money involved? Um, it's an interesting one. I... Um... I mean, the Indian Premier League is different in many sense because obviously only it runs eight weeks, six weeks a year, um, and it is is the richest um, is the richest league, and it does attract the best players. But players can also go and play in different leagues. So a lot of the players who play in India also play in the Big Bash in Australia. Will also go play in the West Indies. Might even play in England. Um, I think uh, there's the, the different. I mean, the one thing the Premier League hasn't maybe done as much as what has been done in the Indian Premier League is the, the opening up to sponsorship, um, which could generate even more money in uh, in English football. But if you look at any Indian Premier League game, there's um, sponsorship breaks, advert breaks, there's all kinds of uh, sponsored things on the field and so on, which the Premier League hasn't quite done yet, probably, I think, maybe good reason. Um, in terms of the actual on-field performance, um, I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I think there's probably a few teams in the Indian Premier League. In fact, I know a couple of teams in the Indian Premier League have used uh, or tried to use data um, to better identify talent. 
Um, but I think they're, they're probably in some ways in the same level as, as uh, European football leagues. So uh, I think it's always interesting to compare, but I'm, I'm not sure uh, without really knowing that much about um, what's going on in the background of the Indian Premier League. I'm not sure there's that much I can uh, really say on that. Staying on the topic of sort of your own writing and writing about football, you had an interesting piece about the uh, European coefficient and how England is, there's a threat of England losing the fourth Champions League spot. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, so I think for probably the last three or four years, um, it gets like March time um, in the season and you'd often get someone go, yeah, that famous scene from The Simpsons, um, uh, when somebody when somebody think of the children, and someone always go, oh, it's when somebody when somebody think of the coefficient. I think for, for years I kind of laughed it off because England's always been um, always had those kind of other years in the late two um, thousands to, to fall back on in terms of the coefficient ranking. But obviously for the last now probably three if not four years, England uh, the English teams have not performed that well in Europe. So I thought I thought I'd give it a look. Uh, it was just one again. A lot of my blogs come from. Oh, I wonder. Uh, that that sounds something that could be quite interesting. I wonder if there's something I could look at there. Um, is there some sort of trend or some sort of analysis that can be done there? So, I, um, yeah, I essentially looked at um, the coefficient scores, coefficient rankings of the of the major European leagues in the last um, however many years. They 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 essentially take the ranking from the last five years, and I, admittedly, I made some very crude projections about what will happen in the next. Um, Three four years. Um, the the most the, mo- the biggest challenge. Uh, and so it's basically based on those very crude projections. Um, it, Italy would be set to overtake uh, England in the coefficient rankings, which would make them third in the rankings, which would give them an extra Champions League spot, taking that spot away from England. So only the top three clubs in England would qualify for the Champions League, which of course would be a disaster for a league that styles itself or, or brands itself as the best league in the world. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the, as I say, the projections were quite crude. A crucial part of it, which is some of the discussions I had on Twitter afterwards, was the fact that uh, Italy have had a phenomenal year, actually, in Europe. And Juventus, obviously, reaching um, the Champions League final. Um, Napoli, Fiorentina have had good years. Uh, and this is the best year they've had for, for many years, actually. So, in any, obviously, that, that year will count um, for the next five years. Um, but it's a question of how how relevant or how uh, how much of an, an anomaly is 2014-15 for Italy, which I think will be a big question going forward um, because it really has come a little bit out of the blue. Um, I mean, I, I, the projections I put on the blog were um, there for discussion. I mean, if I had to make a prediction, I think it'll be very close between Italy and England over the next few years, but I think should do better. Um, I mean, they have done pretty poorly, but I also think they've had pretty poor draws um, over recent years. I mean, if you look... Barring this season, which I think was a bit of an exception, but if you look back from the previous three, four years, English clubs have pretty much exclusively been knocked out by Bayern Munich, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Uh, the, I mean, three teams who are the only three teams who have more resources than English clubs. So I think over the coming years, with a few kinder draws, particularly for, for Man City, who I've always felt a little bit sorry for, um, I think English clubs should be able to hold on to that place, although it is, it is certainly something that and the club should be thinking about and um, and yeah and, and of course the the one benefit they've got this year as well is that the FA Cup runner-up will no longer qualify for the for the Europa League, which um, is a benefit because it goes to an extra place in the league and you potentially have stronger teams rather than with all respect to, to Hull City you probably you'd rather have Southampton than Hull City in the in the Europa League representing England. 
It's kind of sad though because we're going to miss out on Tim Sherwood being in the uh, Europa League on a Thursday night. Um, and I'm sort of wildly assuming that Arsenal will win that, but uh, they will. So yeah, going back to your, the point about the Europa League, uh, and obviously with the coefficient meaning that you know Europa League performance is added into that, and a lot of the sort of media and, and people branding the Europa League is kind of pointless. Do you would you agree with that? And do you think that you know for the sake of this coefficient and potentially the sort of short term future of uh, English football in Europe, we should focus more on Europa League, or do you think it's we should pile more promise and focus on the Champions League still. Yeah, I think, um, so obviously the Europa League's got a neg- negative perception here. It was interesting that this was the first season where the winner of the Europa League um, will qualify for the Champions League. And it, it wasn't quite enough to really incentivise teams to go for it. Or um, maybe it was. Um, I, I, I remember watching Liverpool's exit and it wasn't like they didn't try. It was just a case of um, getting knocked out by it an okay Besiktas team. Um, I think, yeah, I think teams will take it more seriously. I think you're going to have, again, more teams. I, I think you're going to have more teams, again, like um, Liverpool, Southampton, Spurs, and maybe one of those teams dropping out the big, the top four as it stands. Maybe a couple of teams like Everton uh, and the like in Newcastle into the Europa League places. I um, And that will help. I often think with Europa League, obviously, it's just got such a, a negative perception in this country. It's, um, it's it's compared to somewhere like Spain, where it's obviously treated as a much more uh, important and lucrative competition. I think if clubs were needed to be incentivised uh, to do well in the Europa League here, yeah, I think they'd almost need to say if you reach the final, you'd get a Champions League place, because that would really, particularly from the quarterfinal stage onwards, you'd think, oh, we need to win two ties here to, to qualify for the Champions League. Um, that's that's the kind of level of incentive I think there is at the moment. Um, but, may, but maybe if there is, I don't know. There's not been, as I say, my, my blog was just a, a drop in the ocean. Really, it was a, a kind of a crude assessment of where England might be in a couple of years' time. But I think maybe at the end of next season, if there is a bit more media interest in where English football's going, if there's another poor season in Europe and England's coefficient ranking slips again, then there might be some more. Um, some more debate about it, but I think in the in the medium term, if you look at if you look at the clubs competing in the Europa League next season, yes, they're perhaps better than clubs that competed in it before, but they're also clubs that are going to be trying to to push for the Champions League, and that will, uh, if they have say good starts in the league, that will become the focus of their attentions, uh, competing in the league rather than competing in the Europa League. Definitely, uh, and that sort of competition in the league is quite an interesting point and um, recently, I don't know if you, you, you guys have seen, but um, 538 have been paying attention to um, ways they can prevent teams from tanking uh, in NBA. So essentially, okay. there's quite a big um, trend going on at the minute where teams that aren't doing that great, obviously there's more incentive for them to play worse and finish lower down the sort of overall table so that they get a greater draft pick next season. Um, and so to prevent this tanking, there's been all sorts of ways that they've been thinking of how to redo the draft. Um, the, f- the sort of best one I can think of was that they get Adam Silver, who's the um, I can't remember his role. He's like head of the NBA. This commissioner, sort of, commissioner yeah, of the NBA. Um, get him on a giant bear and ride it into a pool full of different fish, <laughs> with each fish re- representing a different team. And the first fish that the bear eats goes to the uh, the first draft pick goes to that team. <laughs> so um, there are some uh, Americans, they have their ways. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of obviously teams have 
even though it's not completely obvious, but they've definitely sort of lowered their performance as to sort of miss the Europa League. Do you think that do you think that's something that we should continue and sort of allow, or do you think the league should step in and and sort of try and resolve that? And Sam, I'd be interested to hear your sort of thoughts also, considering I guess United have been didn't do well that season last season last season either. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I, I know, like Southampton and Spurs, and to an extent, Liverpool's um, results dropped off at the end of the season. I don't think any of them were actively trying to um, avoid the Europa League. I think uh, not even not even Stoke six one or uh, not even that. And I think it would have taken some collateral to fall below Southampton playing Man City as well. So I, I don't think I don't think there's been any um, proactive course of action by those clubs to, to avoid the Europa League. I think. Uh, Maybe in the fair, a couple of clubs were looking in the fair play league and thinking, oh, maybe maybe it's not the best for us. But the fact is, I think sometimes we can we can think that the players are a bit like us. You know, they don't, they kind of have moods and switch off and on. Uh, the fact is, these are professional players who I think want to go out and win every week, um, regardless of of what that means for next season. Yeah. Um, be it that that's just my opinion, really. Yeah, no, um, I was actually really disappointed that United didn't qualify for the Europa League last year because we played in it two or three years back when um, we came third in the Champions League group stage, and I loved it. it uh, United had games against Bilbao and against Ajax, which were fun teams to play. They were great games, and I was disappointed they didn't qualify. So, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel any of this. I hope they drop out so we have less games to worry about in the Premier League. And sort of going back to the the Premier League last day, what did you guys think? Uh, I mean, the six one at Stoke was uh, was good fun, and um, Arsenal had a. I don't know if you guys have seen the goals, but some nice goals in the last day as well. Do you um, did you catch any of that? And what, what were your thoughts on sort of this season gone now, considering we're not going to have Premier League action till uh, early August? Yeah, I, I watched uh, I watched the United whole game um, in amongst watching trying to watch cricket as well at the same time. Um, the United, yeah, the the United whole game I guess in many ways kind of summed up the season for me. It was whole threatened. They they played quite well. I thought they played a right hole, yeah. and yeah, they, they on another day they perhaps could have won it, but then obviously Newcastle won it. It rendered it um, irrelevant anyway. Uh, I don't I don't think it's been the greatest Premier League season if, if we're all being honest with ourselves. There was no real I can't I can't really remember that many great matches um and that's kind of been the the issue that a lot of people have spoken about in terms of English clubs going to Europe you know the the, the top teams playing each other this year haven't had that many great games I think the, the highest quality match that I think I saw was probably the Liverpool beating City at home which I thought was a really high quality game um and an entertaining game um whereas the kind of you had the crazy Spurs Chelsea game the five three which was an entertaining game but it wasn't necessarily the highest quality game if, if that makes sense mm. and I think that was perhaps symptomatic of the season where you had you know the odd moment here and there but I don't think it was particularly exciting season I don't think it's one that will go down in the memory like last season or even eleven twelve um, or seasons like that yeah I think my two favorite games I think or maybe not my two favorite but the two games I enjoyed watching the most outside of United games this year were the Chelsea 6-3 win over Everton and the 5-3 loss to Spurs, which, as Omar said, weren't great quality games, especially the one against Everton. That game was peppered with errors. So, I mean, and those games also both had very little riding on them, which I think is symptomatic of the fact there was very little riding in any big big game going into the end of the season. So, yeah, it was a bit disappointing. I can't remember a final day with less to play for than there was this year. Um, Sam, I guess considering it's now Van Hal 
completed his first season. How do you feel he sort of stacked up compared to say Moyes? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the finish is better than Moyes. I I think I I wrote a stats bomb preview for United and I predicted them to come fourth. And I think Ted had Arsenal coming fourth and United coming fifth. So I was, I mean, I, I think fourth is fine. I was happy with fourth. The team made probably a little less progress than I would have hoped for at the start of the year, but I'm happy with the fourth place finish. So I can't complain. Yeah, um, I think, I think, yeah, I think, Ben, I think it's job done for United. I mean, I'm just looking at the league table now. Certainly in the last third of the season, they played a lot better and probably, based on that, probably deserve to finish in the top four. Uh, and it's sort of been historically, it's been in the in the media a lot that um, Van Hal's quite a slow starter, and that was definitely evidence with him trying every tactic and formation under the sun for the first half of the season, trying to fit in sort of the new signings, and then he sort of uh, he sort of rested the fact that Di Maria doesn't have to start, and he's. I thought it was quite interesting how even though he's made all these signings, he's not had actually sort of forced himself to play them at the end, and he's found his best team and players that mostly he already had but it's going to be another interesting summer considering well on the spending side as well considering that he's been prom- promised a similar size war chest so I was actually delighted that Fellaini got sent off yesterday <laughs> because it means that he'll miss the first three games of the year so Van Hall will have to try something different than what worked over the past couple months which was as even, <laughs> even when it was working well I found a little frustrating I'm glad you said that instead of I'm glad he injured Paul McShane <laughs> yeah, it was quite an interesting final of the season, but um, yeah, and, and like you said, it's, it's, in terms of how seasons go, it's not really been that exciting considering Chelsea won the title with quite a few games to spare. But. Chelsea actually broke away from Man City almost to the day I wrote an article predicting Manchester City to win the title, so <laughs> I, t- I take some credit for Chelsea winning. <laughs> So that's an incorrect fourth, and a correct fourth prediction, and an incorrect title <laughs> prediction. Pretty good. I mean, it, 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 I'm trying to remember. I think uh, so Chelsea got 87 points this year. Did City get like 86 last year? Um, yeah. I don't know. Obviously, obviously, City and Chelsea eased up this year, uh, which meant they could have potentially got 90. But yeah. sometimes it's interesting to look across seasons and like maybe City last year with the same. If, you, if City last year played Chelsea this year, what kind of match would it be? I think um, they had that blip in the, in the late winter, early spring, City, and that, that kind of killed them. I sort of find that it's going to be interesting with City as well this summer purely because the squad is ageing and they've got quite a few players that they'll need to, or positions that they'll need to strengthen, and then they've got financial fair play bearing down on them as well, so... In terms of yeah, although those rules are being loosened, aren't they? So I think uh, yeah, yeah that, that, I think they'll be keeping a very close eye on on uh, some of the announcements that come out of UEFA in the next month or so. I think that will uh, that will dictate hugely how both, or in fact, all the clubs uh, in the top seven or eight will will buy and spend this this summer. Okay, well, I think that about wraps it up for today. Uh, thanks for coming on, Omar. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, and before we leave, Tom, you have something to plug this week, your uh, Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so I sort of had this idea for a sort of self-tweeting Twitter account for a while, purely because being busy and not always having time to check Twitter and check blogs individually. Yeah, might miss some of the sort of re- writing that people put out there, and 
it's always good to I try and read everything that that sort of the main people put out there. So um, yeah, had the idea to create a self sort of automated tweeting uh, account, and yeah, I've done it. Um, it's called um, Fanalytics Blogs. That was the best name I could come up with at the time. So if anyone has anything better, please let me know. But yeah, it's um, it's going well. There's a link to a, a spreadsheet that you can add in uh, any blogs, your own or someone else's, and uh, I'll add that into the stream, and then it just auto automatically tweets out the links to new articles and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's quite good. It's hopefully useful for other people. It's certainly useful for me just to check it sort of uh, morning and night. If anyone's got any suggestions on how to improve it, please uh, yeah let me know. So that's that. Yeah, perfect. And remember to uh, subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. As I said, hopefully above two. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Thank you.